0: Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Masqueranis, and this is our Wednesday show, where we niche down into a single topic, think about a question, and unpack the rest. This week, we're asking, are fintech startups playing offense or defense today? As always, I am joined by Alex Wilhelm, who has been doing some great reporting for us about how public markets are answering this question. Alex, how are you?
1: Well, I'm doing better than fintech stocks.
0: Ooh, that, that's that was not, slow. Say, <laughs> it's
1: not saying much. I mean, I could be I could be sitting here like with, you know, both my legs missing, and I would still be doing better than fintech stocks, but I'm fine. Thanks for asking.
0: <laughs> it's kind of crazy. I feel like my favorite and only metric I ever remember on the top of my head is one out of every five dollars in VC are going to fintech. And like that's all I can remember, and it just like continues to boggle me. So I am very thankful we have a special guest, Marianne, who we convinced to come on the Wednesday show. Marianne, thank you for being here to explain to us your wild world. Oh, yeah. Excited to be here. It'll, it's going to be fun. So we will definitely start with two news hooks that explain why we care about this question today. But for a high level, we're going to talk about fintech going full stack what that means for competition and what happens if you are all trying to fight for the same user cohort. We'll also get into which startups are going to compete with each other. I think we're going to do some live analysis at some point. Who knows? And then finally end with if the fintech recorrection in the public markets right now will trickle down to private startups. But Marianne,
2: let's start with Pipe and Ramp making headlines last week. Yeah, sure. So Pipe, for the unacquainted, started out as a company that wanted to help SaaS companies get their revenue up front by pairing them with investors on a marketplace. So they kind of touted themselves as a NASDAQ for revenue. So they're looking at revenue as an asset class, basically. Over time, they have gradually expanded their focus. They moved from just SaaS companies to basically any company with predictable recurring revenue. So they kind of opened up their customer base quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Last week, they announced that they had acquired another company called Purely Capital that marked their foray into the media and entertainment space. This was quite unexpected to me. I've been covering Pipe since their first seed round back in 2020. I didn't expect this move, but they apparently are super hyped about it, and they 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 say that this is really just one more step, and their intent to kind of expand into all verticals.
1: Okay, two quick things. One, seed round from 2020. You kind of wound up there thinking I was going to be like 2012, but no, it's basically two years 20, ago, which is 20, crazy. Right just barely 2022. And then I'm curious about the media side of this. So we heard about hedge funds buying Paul McCartney's back catalog of songs because they'll generate revenue over a long period of time. Is that kind of what Pipe is financing or is it a different form of media revenue? And so I shouldn't think of it along lines that I already understand.
2: Yeah, no, I think it's, they're looking more at like films, like independent films, so it's more of that because they're saying the big streaming companies like Netflix and Amazon, and they don't really have a problem with revenue, right? But a lot of the the film producers are independents who who need more money up front to like, do what they need to do. So that's what they're focusing on with this acquisition.
0: I mean, and, and the reason that inspired this core question we're answering today was it felt so surprising to see a company that was all about tech and ARR and SaaS businesses get into media and entertainment. My cynical side was, is this because tech isn't enough? And my optimistic (laughs) side was that because you've proven it out with tech, can you do anything next? And I'm sure they will never say the former. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's the whole
1: point. Is it offensive (laughs) or a defensive? And that's a a great prism through which to view the question, Natasha.
0: And then with Ramp, that's even, I think, a little bit more of like a dramatic flair for us to talk about (laughs) before we get into the Super
2: quickly before we we, uh, move away from pipe, I just want to read this quote from Harry Hurst, the co-founder and CEO or co-CEO, I don't recall. But anyway, he says that his goal is that the entire um, revenue as an asset class will be something that they're going to do like for everyone. Quote, eventually anyone should be able to originate onto our platform. So like... They're going full force here, and they seem to be very optimistic about the opportunity. Now, as for Ramp, Ramp is a corporate spend management startup, very heated competitive space these days. And last week, Ramp announced it was expanding into travel. Yes. Yeah. So the reason why this is kind of dramatic is that another company in this space, Trip Actions, last year announced that it had, it had done the reverse. It had expanded from being travel focused to a general corporate spend company. So now they're like even more competitive with each other.
1: I swear, all fintech looks the same after five years. They all start somewhere and then they just merge into this like fintech blob that tastes like chicken.
0: Uh, no, yeah, a hundred percent, Alex. Let's lean into that because I think both those examples really did show us that it reinforced this trend we've been talking about about fintech going full stack. But if I recall correctly, that's not entirely new. Like have so on this for a while. Like, what is your take on how this trend has evolved to, I guess, now when we're recording, Alex? Yes.
1: Well then I'm gonna. Hold my notes back up then, because I, <laughs> or moved I actually solely. have some
2: thoughts. If you want, yeah, 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 uh, okay. yeah feel, feel sure. Feel um, so I think I think this is interesting, and one of the things that is kind of obvious is like customer acquisition cost, right? First of all, it's far lower. Your costs are far lower if you already have the customers and you're just expanding it to offering them different stuff, right? So so then the potential for how much money you make goes up. So like in the case of trip actions, they're already kind of marketing to their existing customer base. Like, hey, we offered you. This platform to manage your travel expenses, but now we can help you with more, like all your expenses. So, you know, your customer or CAC costs go down dramatically if you kind of choose this route.
1: Well, there's two ways to think about that, Marianne. There's the way to limit your effective CAC compared to revenue, but you can also just drive more revenue per customer if you've already gone through the work of acquiring them, if you offer them more services. And especially in the hyper-competitive world of both consumer fintech and, I don't know, B2B fintech, if you will, the, the cost of getting the customer and getting them in, getting that direct deposit or linking those corporate accounts, that's the work. Once you have somebody, don't you want to sell them more stuff? And that's why mm-hmm. I think it ends up that all these companies end up kind of crowding into each other's domains. And it's also why anytime a fintech startup CEO tells you they don't compete with someone, the answer is at best, maybe, and maybe soon is how I'd put it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so Agreed. true. I mean, it's a it's a headache, I'm sure, for so many founders, early stage founders, right now, on who they should bring onto their cap table. And Marianne, I was actually I was reading your recent investor survey, and Christina from Bain Capital explained it well. She said that fintech reached a true turning point last year, and that consumers are now you know hugely accepting all these different forms of payments and banking. So like we've gotten the consumer habit. So now it's really natural for back end fintech te- technology to be spin up. Mm-hmm. And even though that's maybe somewhat obvious to people who live in FinTech and, and cover it all the time, right. I think I forget that consumers have driven so much change here that now it's not as, I guess, experimental for a company
2: to kind of go backwards or expand in the way we
0: see mm-hmm. these companies expanding.
2: Yeah, I mean, for sure. I think a lot of these companies had to like accelerate their, their plans by, you know, months and years to like keep up, right, with consumer demand and with Competition, so um, definitely the pandemic accelerated all this, and um, yeah, for those of us like living, breathing in this world, um, yeah, embedded fintech and all that, and payments, like it's just become like a thing. But you know, for the consumer, it's just like, make it easier on me, please. That's all they care about.
1: Yeah. Well, I think we should talk about the the increasing prevalence of APIs and how it's easier to build stuff into your fintech app in a second. But I want to give an example because. When I was prepping for the show, I knew that SoFi had gone from student loans, which was my entire comprehension of the company. Same. By the time SoFi had gotten big, I was nearly done paying mine off. Um, So it didn't really land in my my orbit. And I knew that it had expanded. But what I didn't actually know was just how far. So I'm on the the SoFi website, sofi.com, in case you're so curious and couldn't figure that out for yourself. Here's the current list of products at the top level category, not subcategories, top levels. Student loan refinancing, private student loans, Personal loans, home loans, auto loan refinance, investing, crypto, credit cards, banking, (laughs) everything, estate planning, insights, and then business solutions. Wow.
2: Mom The only thing they don't do is give you a massage and pack you a lunch. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean here's the thing. Like this is kind of where a lot of companies are, are like headed, like especially like are feeling real estate tech, you know, where they're like, oh, we could help you buy a home digitally. But now we're going to do everything else for you, like help you get insurance, help you with the title, help you, you know, help you with the mortgage, all of it. You know, they want to be this one stop shop. And I, obviously that's what SoFi is trying to do. Um, I think the news last week that it was acquiring another company um, was just Mm. further evidence sorry I don't remember the name of the company offhand but uh, it was requiring another company it's just part of how it's just continuing to try to expand into this one-stop shop but I think it's stock went down and like Maybe investors are concerned that it's trying to do too much.
0: A stress I have as, and, and this is me more coming from like reporting on health tech, was just because someone comes to you for mental health services, will they come to you when they break a bone? And is it fair to apply that same question to fintech? Just because I came to you for student loans, am I going to come to you for estate planning? Like, why are these startups feeling so confident that they can go full stack okay. is the question I always have.
1: That is Alex such is a good question. So <laughs> um, I, was, I was just thinking about your your point, if I go to someone for mental health and then I break my leg, do I go to the same doctor? No. If you ask my spouse, who is a pediatrician, uh, an adult and child psychiatrist, what's wrong with my whatever I just ran into the wall, she'll be like, I have no idea. Because that's not her specialty. And you cannot specialize in the whole human body. You can't. It's too complex. It's too busy. Why would I really want to go have a checking account at my student loan refinancing place? You know, So I was going to argue before the show that no matter where you start in the consumer or business fintech world, you end up kind of in the same place because you end up adding a blob of services and you end up looking like everyone else and you taste like chicken. But maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe where you start does matter because that's the tone for your customer base and their expectations. And your initial yeah. hook maybe does have more DNA impact on your business than I might have thought.
2: I mean, some people like the convenience of it, right? So they don't have to deal with so many different Entities to manage finances, so I I guess there's some appeal there. Do you see, Marianne, any like verticals that would never touch each other? Because I think
0: the way that we're framing this episode is mainly around consumer fintech. Yeah, but is there certain kinds of companies that will never? compete with each other? Like, is a Brex and Pipe eventually going to compete
2: with each other? That feels possible. But I'm wondering who's never going to compete with yeah, like, a Pipe. Yeah, that's hard to say because I think everyone's doing so many unexpected moves these days. It's really it's really hard to say. Also, payments. And this is where that joke comes up, where like everyone's a fintech or everything is fintech these days, yeah. because it really, it really is true. Like even companies that are just their e-commerce, for example, well, they include a payments component in their in their offering. So like everyone's a fintech, everyone's competing against each other in one way or another these days. So it's really tough to say.
1: Okay, let's let's can we play with Natasha's point and ask about Brex and Pipe and if they're going to end up being competitors. Let's <laughs> let's mind game this out. And by the let's way, do this is not in our notes. So this is going to be freewheeling fun. This is going to be so fun. <laughs> so so Brex does corporate spend and it yeah. has expanded into um expense management software, which it charges for. It also does cash accounts or cash management accounts, I think they're called, and it does I think some lending, I think for like merchants, right?
2: It applied for a bank charter too last year, which I think they, it was not. I think they had to withdraw the application for some reason. So that that's kind of in limbo. But that's okay. another uh, goal of it of the companies.
1: So I don't really see Brex building Pipe, a marketplace in which you can sell different types of revenue for upfront cash, right? But I can see Pipe saying, "Hey, you just sold your revenue for a million dollars. Here's your money." In your brand new pipe checking account, and here's a debit card, Ooh. by the way. <laughs> and, oh, you know what we can do? Why don't we build some software on top of that, so that way you can track your expenses when you use your pipe money? So yeah. why why not? I mean,
0: the branding's there too, right? Yeah. Like yeah. pipe is so broad that it could do anything and connect you to anything. Marianne, what do you agree with? Yeah, there? I mean, totally,
2: it could happen, and you know, you might be giving them ideas if they haven't already thought of it. I, I think. Pipe's buzzy, right? And there's been a lot of hype around what the company's doing, and they're very ambitious. And so I could I could totally see it. I could totally see them wanting to do something like that one day. And I think that's pretty brilliant. Uh, thought on your part, Alex?
1: Well, they've raised $316 million, according to Crunchbase data, including a March 2021 round of a quarter billy. So I'm pretty sure they can afford to do whatever the hell they want. You know, yeah, so I mean, from what they were
2: telling me that even when they raised, it was always, you know, how founders say, well, we didn't really need the capital, but, right, you right, know, it favorite. was it was there. And then like, you know, things like it's still all in the bank. And so they, they claim to be very capital efficient. They're a very lean team, I think, like 80 people. Um, yeah. So they they pride themselves on being super lean and capital efficient. Uh, founder Harry Hearst is is quite charismatic, seems like a Seems like a nice guy. I could see this happening. Another interesting thing about Pipes, they had a lot of strategic investors last year with HubSpot, Shopify, Slack. Okta. Yeah, right. You know, so I don't know. There's there's a lot of potential what could be done with with this company, but I do.
0: It's I, potential. I, I get, it's also messy, right? Like yeah. I feel like there's so much that the web is so thick and confusing at times. But I think Marianne, what you're saying is like they're they're growing, they're doing great right. reportedly, right? And so that's all we can see right now. I guess like the last question I have in the competition section of our show, and and then I do want to take away our optimism hats, yeah. and be a little <laughs> bit more pessimistic, yeah. Is does it make sense to be a seed stage neobank today? I feel like that's not something anyone could really afford to do.
2: You know, I think that's I, a, it's a good question. A yeah, I don't see as many funding rounds for. Digital banks. Last year, we saw kind of a flurry of them, especially digital banks focused on very specific demographics, like Black and Latinx population, or even one on Asian Americans, or very specific immigrants, too. But general neobanks, I mean, I feel like it's a saturated space. You're not really seeing so many new ones. What do you think?
1: Okay. So here's my question. In the era of FinTech APIs, you can essentially bolt on whatever you want to your service. You can use Alpaca to bring zero cost trading to your platform, whatever, whatever, whatever ad nauseum. That means that everyone can kind of do everything, which means that everyone's going to look the same as we said. But the thing is, just having all the pieces is not the same thing as having a company. Because if you think about the pre-iPhone era, and I'm going back into into my pocket PC and Palm days because I was a really cool teenager. Before the iPhone came out, we had all the components of an iPhone. You could buy a, a Treo. You could buy uh, an iPad from HP. And they were smartphones. They had phones. They had a little screen. They had an, uh, an OS. And they were complete shit. And then Apple came out with an idea called the iPhone that brought them all together in a very unified, neat way that was very efficient and mm. worked well. And that right. crushed the market. And so I, I think maybe we're giving too much credit in this conversation to all these companies converging on the same point when the quality of the final product might, in fact, be very different.
2: Well- Okay. Excellent analogy. And you bring me to my next point, yes. which was these companies really need to be careful of not trying to do too much, right? Because you don't want to do too much in a mediocre fashion. Rather, I feel like if it were me, of course, it's not me. But if I were a founder, I'd really want to do one or two things like super, super well, rather than do like a bunch of things with you know mediocre results. That's just my opinion. Now, I applaud their ambition. You're right about the APIs allowing for integrations, but you got to be a little more strategic. And I feel like there's all this FOMO and we got to keep up. And, you know, I think companies, investors all need to slow down a little bit. And I cannot tell one company apart from the other most of the time. And it's really, really frustrating for me as someone who covers the space.
0: And so Marianne, let me ask you, I was going to wait <laughs> till the end of the show, but do you think these moves and this energy we're seeing from FinTech today is desperation or is it as good as everyone is telling us in our interviews with them that we're growing and the world's our oyster.
2: Yeah, I don't I don't know if desperation's the word, but I do feel like it's a combination of being on the offensive and defensive right? I think it's both. They recognize that other companies are trying to move into their territory or there's just so much going on that they feel like they have to keep up. And there's this FOMO, I think the investors pressure too, right? Mm -hmm. So that, I don't know. That's my opinion on offensive and defensive. I don't know if I answered your question though, Natasha.
0: You did. You did. I I think I just learned a lot, like too much. We could end the episode there. (laughs) But Alex- you I mean, you have been covering this as well. So I would love to see what example you're kind of hooked on to right now.
1: Yeah. So I, I was just thinking about this. And again, it turns out that most of what I thought before we started recording is actually wrong and I've come That's to an, an entirely new perspective. In my view, it was not really offensive or defensive as a move to add a lot of features. It just seemed to be kind of the way things went. But now I think it kind of is defensive because you probably spent too much money. Your cap was probably too high compared to your LTV. Do you start up acronyms? And so you probably need to juice your existing customers for good revenue. Probably investors love to see rising ARPU at consumer or enterprise fintech. But here's an argument for focus. And I'm just thinking about Airbase and Amex. Airbase is a Brex Ramp competitor, kind of one of the three major corporate spin startups in the US that are kind of all butting heads. And they just raised some money from Amex Ventures. And the reason why Amex chose them, because I talked to an Amex um, MD about this, and essentially they were like, look, they had the best software. That was kind of what it boiled down to. They did this thing the best. And Airbase is probably not going to end up competing with Pipe because they just kind of do one thing. They're a SaaS company, they make expense software, and then they give you back all the interchange v- money via cashback. That's their value prop. That's what they do. And that's a pretty constrained remit. And it seems to be kind of bearing out a little bit because when Ramp and Brex were growing with not charging for the software, Airbase stuck to its guns slash knitting, if you will, and rolled along. And now everyone's kind of come in their direction, but by having the right initial focus, do they have a long-term advantage is kind of the thing. Can you really catch up by bolting on more features with a staple gun?
0: Well said. I think they wouldn't feel the need to expand if, like you're saying, their initial Product was enough. And that might be like a very one way to look at it. Like, sure, everything is profitable. We'll just get even more profitable. But I agree, there is a value where you focus on one. And so I covered Moss a few weeks ago. It started as like that marketplace that connected students to scholarships. And now they're becoming a fintech neobank, actually. And I remember asking their founder, and I was like, so what does this mean for revenue, actually? Like, is this a revenue move? Because the other thing wasn't working. And she didn't say that, but she did say our TAM in- is increasing significantly. Which is, of course, if you like, kind of peel back a few layers, is a revenue mm-hmm. decision, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And if you need a good example of, of TAM expansion, which is total addressable market, and you want to put that into consumer terms, I can illustrate this for you. Please. Uh, if you're not currently partnered off, grab your phone, pull up Tender or whatever, and then just quadruple your radius. Good. Your TAM's bigger. That's what we're talking about.
2: Exactly. You're so good with the analogies,
0: Alex. I
1: I I have had too much coffee today. I have more work to do. It's nearly six PM and we're going Alex for it. Alex
0: after hours is the Alex we love to have on the show. <laughs> um, no, I think that's perfect. And I think in that way, it's hard to not view some of these moves as Marion, to your point, at least partially defensive. Which takes us to the last section, which is the market. What are we hearing from the market right now that is telling us that fintech, is it still the hottest sector in startups right now? Or are those dollars kind of having different taste buds at the current moment? Um,
2: My inbox is indicating that things are not really slowing down right now. But I would have to say, though, that like I said, I'm getting a lot more discriminating in terms of what I feel like I should cover. And I feel like investors are probably also kind of you know feeling a similar thing like this mentality of okay you know we kind of went crazy last year we went nuts now let's take a like a take a step back and see what's working what isn't where should we really be focusing our dollars on and i just i'm just super curious to see which of these startups which cause companies are raising money left and right and you know round after round within months just how this all plays out because you know you can raise a ton of money at a high valuation but you know, you've know, you got to have something to show for it eventually.
1: Or People are less patient. People are less patient and expectations are, in fact, higher because you're not going to get the same, pick your metric, GMV multiple if you're a marketplace, revenue multiple if you're a software company, or the, if you're a cryptocurrency exchange, price to earnings ratio in the case of Coinbase. That's a whole different story that I'm not going to get into, but I would love to. I think when we think about the markets and their expectations, the dramatic decline in the value of high-flying fintech companies post the pandemic bump is going to be an entire bucket of icy water thrown in the face of a lot of these companies because they were priced at multiples that have since compressed, which means they have to grow two, three times as much to grow into their valuations. And it's going to be tough without needing more capital given how everyone was spending last year.
0: Right.
1: And with VCs getting more conservative at the same time, it kind of feels like a double or triple compression. That's going to be really tough.
0: Well said. I think, tell us which startups or which companies you're subtweeting right now. Like which fintechs are the ones that are most... Under fire
1: at the moment. Well, <laughs> oh, sorry. Is that from Marianne? Is that from me? No, I
0: mean in the in the public markets. What like the numbers that we do? We are lucky like enough to have. Who is actually doing well
1: uh, who in public markets? Horrible. Well, I, I happen to have pulled up here. Um, Robinhood and their Yahoo Finance profile. Yahoo Finance. Fine financial news everywhere. Our sister company, uh, Robinhood's is currently <laughs> worth about twelve bucks a share, give or take. And it was worth up to $85 per share at its peak in the last year. And that, to me, is the peak of the hype to the current trough of reality. I think that kind of deceleration in value creation, it, it's negative value creation, it's value loss, is um, a thing we haven't fully digested in the startup world yet. Because everyone thinks that, well, you know, that's a Series B company. They won't go public for five years. Things will recover by then. Maybe.
2: Yeah, this all leads me to a, a tweet that I saw recently, and I think it speaks to this very point. Eric Paley tweeted, the most common exit opportunity is not a multi-billion dollar IPO, but a 50 million to 100 million dollar acquisition. If you've raised a modest amount of money, that can be a transformative outcome. If you've maximized VC at each stage, many, if not all of those opportunities will be closed. Um, that you know, I thought that was really insightful, actually. And I think that companies, when they're taking all this VC money, have to think about what goes along with that. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure to exit when you've taken hundreds of millions of investor dollars. To stay on the theme of all of us, I guess, changing our minds on something during the episode. (laughs) Now that you're saying this out loud,
0: both of you, I feel like for the past few weeks, I've been like, it's not a startup reckoning. It's a recorrection. We all knew this was going to happen. It does feel one degree tougher than just a recorrection that everyone planned for, especially in something like fintech. Where you will either succeed or you will not. It's kind of hard to go under the radar at this point. As to Eric's tweet, we will see startups shut down because of the way that they raised, which is was not something we would even dare to say out loud a year ago. Or
1: today, if they sell for seventy five million, to sit right in the middle of his range, there the founders and the employees will get nothing because of how financing starts yeah. set up and how there's usually downside protection for investors and so forth. So you know, if companies do have to sell, and what we pejoratively and perhaps rudely call a fire sale, yeah, it's going to be a massacre. I love seeing smaller deals. There were a couple in Daily Crunch on uh, on Monday that I typed up. Always good fun, but I'm always very curious to know how much that number really translates to value creation for people who aren't already wealthy. Yeah, good question.
0: And something that the startup ecosystem, in the biggest sense of that description, is finally asking really loudly. So I'm really happy that we're at that stage where we're like expecting money from these companies. If you're working there, to end, I guess, like what startups can learn from our conversation today, (laughs) I'll go first. Okay. I feel like my take. It's yes, it's about are you going to play offense or defensive each round that you raise, but it's also do you have a radical take or hell you're willing to die on as a company that you do so well that someone can't just copy and paste. Yeah. The same way that Ramp expanded into trip actions, Lunch and trip actions expanded into Ramp's Lunch is one of my favorite moments that ever hap- is ever happening in fintech, but it's also something that I want to see who wins because if one of them does win on the other person's <laughs> success, then we'll
2: know who actually defended their territory. Yeah. That's where I'm at. Okay, well, but the argument there is, is, and this relates to a column that I wrote recently, which gives me a moment to plug my upcoming fintech newsletter, oh, which you should yes. subscribe to uh, if you if you can. Pause the podcast right now. Yeah, <laughs> subscribe, <laughs> subscribe, please. <laughs> um, anyway, so what that column a few weeks back said that this corporate spend space is actually not necessarily a winner takes all space. So I guess there could be an argument that in certain certain categories. There's enough to go around for multiple players. But in the end, you still have to do what you do really, really well. And so even if there's room for more than one player, I agree with you, Natasha. It's like, don't try to do too much. Try to do what you're doing super well. If you're going to expand, make sure you do that well, too, because nobody wants mediocrity right now.
1: Amen. That also applies to my dating example earlier. Um, (laughs) I think that what I've kind of come to here is execution is the chariot of genius, which is one of those quotes my dad rammed into my head by repeating it 6,000 times as a child. And the reason it applies here is companies that can do Three, four things well at once are going to be at the advantage. But that's not going to be most companies. And so, going back to the example of SoFi, what do you do so well that it becomes synonymous with your name? And I don't think that taking that initial starting point and via either in-house work or external APIs, bolting on the rest of the fintech world, is going to suddenly expand your overall TAM. I think it expands your TAM on paper. I don't know how much it expands your TAM in reality. So. I would love to see everyone go public so we get all the numbers and know better. But in the meantime, I'm going to be doubly skeptical about everyone's fintech progress because if everyone's doing everything, no one's doing much.
0: Guys, I learned so much during this podcast. I have to plug everyone's stuff. So read Alex's reporting on fintech earnings and the reckoning that is happening. Read Marianne's fintech newsletter that is soon to launch officially, but has already published some amazing issues. And also your fintech investor survey. And use code equity, I think. That still works, right, guys?
1: I. On, uh, I haven't been told otherwise. So, okay, yes. <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> Use code equity on TechCrunch Plus to access all of our writing.
1: A- and and I'll, thanks, both of you. No, 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 no. Natasha, oh. her Twitter account is <laughs> mask underscore. She's a complete minch. She's the best. And uh, she Aww. has another personal newsletter called Two Wordy that I love.
0: Whoa. Whoa. Brilliant okay, I will start writer. writing that my boyfriend's parents started actually listening to the podcast. Oh, my gosh. Oh, that's so uh, Now I have to actually do a good job. Wow, pressure's on. When my (laughs) mother-in-law reads
1: my tweets, I'm always like, oh, that's right, you're on Twitter.
0: (laughs) Perfect. Um, Alex, Marianne, always a pleasure and we will listen to everyone else on Friday. Yeah. Bye.